Okay, what we're going to look at is something I'm calling the apologetic of evil. And what I mean by that is this. Pretty well, the number one reason that people will say <clears throat> they don't believe in God or wouldn't even consider things is because they would say evil happens or suffering happens. And what's called the problem of evil is one that people sometimes really struggle with. So, for example, um, what I find interesting is I, I wrote a book called Ask, which is for teenagers, which is questions for teenagers all over the world. What was really interesting was the only countries that asked me about specifically about this were Western countries. And uh, there was 21 countries from throughout the world. And the majority of them were not Western. And what struck me was how countries which have seen in some sense, a lot more evil than we might have. Evil didn't seem to them to be the, the major difficulty in believing in God. And that's set me thinking a lot about things. And I want to suggest something to you that's a little bit counterintuitive. I think the existence of evil and even the existence of suffering is a, is a, is a reason for us to believe in God. And let me explain why. We'll go through this. <clears throat> fairly quickly, because I do want you to have the opportunity to ask questions um, as we try and work this through. So here's the problem of evil, simply stated. Now, it's 10 o'clock in the morning, and I'm working on the assumption that people in Adelaide are like people elsewhere. Most of you are wide awake at this time of the morning. If I was doing this at two in the afternoon, it might be a slightly different thing. But um, I'm a farm boy, so I'm used to getting up very early, five o'clock in the morning, and I've done that all my life. Um, but if you try and get me in the afternoon, uh, I once as a pastor fell asleep on someone's couch uh, as they were telling me all their problems. Um, so I learned not to do pastoral visits in the afternoon. Uh, but you're wide awake. So let's, let's just stick with this. Right. First of all, number one, God is omnipotent so he could destroy evil. Isn't he? God's all powerful so he could destroy evil. Number two, God is good so he'd want to destroy evil. Number three, evil exists, so the good, omnipotent God cannot exist. That's the standard definition of it. Or let me explain it in this terms, uh, my old adversary, Richard Dawkins. The total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. During the minute that it takes me to compose this sentence, thousands of animals are being eaten alive. Many others are running for their life, whimpering with fear. Others are slowly being devoured from within by rasping parasites. Thousands of all kinds are dying of starvation, thirst, and disease. It must be so. If there's ever a time of plenty, this very fact will automatically lead to an increase in the population until the natural state of starvation and misery is restored. I, I love the way, by the way, the Dawkins has such a, a cheery view of the world, you know, the natural state of misery and starvation. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces, and genetic replication, some people are gonna get hurt, other people are gonna get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. And that is from uh, River of Eden, a Darwinian view of life. So the universe is blind, pitiless indifference. Now, I want to address this problem of evil, first of all, for 
those people who believe that, for the evolutionary naturalists. What does it mean? If, you, if that's what, how you think the world is, first of all, it means there's no creation. Secondly, there's no life after death. Thirdly, there's no ultimate foundation for morality. Fourth, there's no ultimate meaning in life. And fifth, there is no human free will. And if there is no human free will, human beings cannot be responsible for what they do. It's like when you're, your child, you come downstairs and you open the fridge and um, you notice that the ice cream tub has been dipped into and your child has been helping themselves. And you say, what did you do that for? And uh, the child says, well, it wasn't me. It was the devil made me do it. It's not my responsibility. Now, that is where I think what I would call evolutionary naturalism, that's not to get into the question about at this stage whether God could have used evolution, but I'm talking about an unguided process. And that's where it leads you. So Frederick Nietzsche, for example, suggested that the bulk of humanity has misunderstood concepts such as evil and good. And he basically says that they don't exist. He, he wrote a book called Beyond Good and Evil. Now, so here's the problem. If you say, I don't believe in God, or if someone wants to say, I don't believe in God because I see evil, how do you get your concept of evil? Because the concept of evil cannot just come from the creation. The creation is the way it is. The way things are is the way things are. So how do you get this idea of good and evil? And this is where C.S. Lewis, his testimony is quite remarkable. As he made his journey from atheism to theism and then to Christianity, he realized that the problem of evil presented more of a problem for the atheist than it does for the theist. He stated this, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that then, my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was full of sense. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. Now, I said I was going to make you think. Um, Lewis's thing is, is very straightforward. He's saying, you've got this idea of good and evil, and then you say you cannot believe in God because there's evil. But where do you get this idea of good and evil from? And that, that, that is just a massive, massive uh, argument. William Lane Craig puts it a slightly different way. He says this, if God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. Now, a lot in our culture want to say that objective moral values do not exist. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you, um, I'll give you an illustration of that in a moment. But William Lane Craig, you know, if God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. Number two, evil exists. My wife is a mental health officer, and one time she was dealing with a particularly difficult case, and she said to the psychiatrist, 
you know, how do you explain this? And the psychiatrist said, pure evil. That's what this is. And she said, I'm amazed. I didn't think you believed in evil. I said, oh, absolutely. There is evil. Evil exists. Therefore, says William Lane Craig, objective moral values exist. That is to say, some things are evil. Therefore, God exists. Um, it's a neat and, and clever argument. But the way I put it is this. I once did a debate down in the University of Cambridge. And it was the president of the Atheist Society and someone else against my, myself and a, a professor, a Christian professor. And the motion was ridiculous. You know, this house uh, believes, I think, this house believes that uh, God does not exist. And it was, uh, you know, the majority of people there were either skeptics or atheists. And I knew we were going to get beat until my opponent at one point during his talk quoted, uh, I think it was Bertrand Russell, saying Dachau is wrong is not a fact. Dachau was wrong, but it's not an objective fact in the same way as saying that, you know, gravity exists. So I interrupted, I, I had three interruptions and I wanted to use one of them. And I said, sorry, can I ask you about that? And he said, I thought you would. And he said, David, we can't prove. He said, I think it was wrong, but we can't prove what's good and what's evil. These are just subjective things. And he said, can you prove evil? And I said, well, yeah, kind of. And I remember praying, just thinking, Lord, one of these arrow prayers. And I came up with this. Um, I'm not claiming this was divine revelation, but it seemed to work. I said, it's, it's very straightforward. I said, you, because you do not believe in God, you cannot have an objective moral good or an objective evil. Therefore, you cannot say that Dachau is wrong, because if you're going to be consistent, you, you cannot say that something is what you say doesn't exist. And he said, yes, but he says, you just believe in God. Um, you just say that there's evil because of God. And I said, no, no, you've got this the wrong way around. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, let me start off with simply saying this. At that, I had a 10-year-old daughter at that point. I said, I challenge anyone here, anyone who assaults or rapes or abuses my 10-year-old daughter, that's evil, right? The minute you start to argue about that and say, well, we don't know if that's evil or not, I said, then you've removed yourself from the human race at least in any terms of logic or empathy, that is evil. So I then ask, why is that evil? And I keep asking, why is it evil? Why is it evil? Why is it evil? Why is it evil? I keep going back and back and back. And ultimately I come back to the fact that it has to be evil because there is a good God who defines what good and evil is. So ironically, I end up believing in God because I know that evil exists. Whereas because you don't believe in God, you end up not even believing in humanity. You, you cannot say that there is good and evil. Now, that's where I'm coming from in this particular argument. Now, some atheists then want to say, is evil just suffering and, um, and to needless suffering? So in his book, The Miracle of Theism, J.L. Mackey argues that if the theist could show that suffering was in some way useful, so, for example, I, I'm sorry if any of you are dentists, 
but I don't like dentists. Well, sorry, I don't like going to the dentist. There are lots of individual dentists who are wonderful people. Um, in my previous congregation, I had quite a number of dentists and they didn't like uh, this illustration and they certainly didn't like me scaring children. So I stopped using it. But I, you know, I found going to the dentist as a child an awful thing. And even going to the dentist now, if I describe it in one particular way, that uh, somebody sticks a needle into you and causes you pain, or someone drills in your teeth and they cause you pain, but there's a reason for them causing you pain and that's to stop you having more pain. So the argument is if you could show that there was suffering that had purpose, then, then it would be okay. But surely in this world, there is a lot of needless suffering. And Tim Keller answers this really well. He says, tucked away within the assertion that the world is filled with pointless evil is a hidden premise. Namely, that if evil appears pointless to me, then it must be pointless. And Keller goes on to note that just because you cannot imagine or see a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean there can't be one. Again, he says, we see lurking within supposedly hard-nosed skepticism an enormous faith in one's own cognitive faculties. If our minds can't plumb the depths of the universe for good answers to suffering, well, there can't be any. And he argues that this must is blind faith of a highest order. So I would argue that, you know, sometimes we just don't know. Let me again give you a, a, another example. Um, in my first charge, it was in a small highland village called Brora. The, there was a young couple who uh, I got on well with, but they didn't come to church. They were atheists. Um, and they they used to say to me that they hated God. You know, it's funny, this new fundamentalist atheism, there is no God and I hate it, uh, which I felt was a bit lacking in its logic. But, you know, they really were like that. And then absolutely tragically, their 18-month-old baby died. And they asked me to take the funeral. And it's one of these funerals you just do not want to take, you know, with a little white coffin and just a, a handful of, of relatives, almost like a private funeral. And it was just heartbreaking. And then on the Sunday, the following Sunday, I was really shocked to see the mother in church. And when she came out of church, I said, forgive me saying this to you, but why are you here? You know, I thought you would have really hated, you know, you said you hate God before. You're going to, well, you know, this is, just, this is just unbelievable pain for you. And she just looked at me with tears in her eyes and she said, David, if there's no God, then none of this makes any sense. And I actually think you will find that there are many people who have suffered and it's through their suffering that they're drawn to God. And that there are people who think about suffering and some or, or there are people who've been brought up with a wrong view of God. And when they suffer, that view of God is blown apart. You know, God is their granddad who helps them pass their exams, make sure their 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 dog never dies, make sure they never have a car accident or ever get sick. Well, if you believe in that kind of God, then you're soon going to be disavowed of that belief. So. Let, from, I want to return to the Christian view because I've been critiquing other views. If the world has created good, then why is there the devil, if you want to put it that way? Why is there the evil one? Did God create a perfect world and, and get it wrong? Or did God create a perfect world which he allowed to go wrong? And I wrestled with that question for many years until I read uh, St. Augustine. 
And to summarize it this way, he says this, God created all things. Evil is not a created thing. It is the absence of good. God did not create evil because it's not a created thing, but he permits it for the good. And there are two quotes in particular from Augustine, which I found really helpful. He says this, first of all, from his book, In Kirirdun. And in the universe, even that which is called evil, when it is regulated and put in its own place, only enhances our admiration of the good. For we enjoy and value the good more when we compare it with the evil. For the almighty God, who has even the heathen acknowledged, has supreme power over all things, being himself supremely good, would never permit the existence of anything evil among his works if he were not so omnipotent and good that he can bring good even out of evil. And in the same book, he says this, for he judged it better to bring good out of evil than not to permit any evil to exist. Now, Romans 8, 28 tells us something very simple. It tells us that uh, all things work together for the good of those who love God. I think it's John Piper who points out that that is frequently uh, put on a poster, you know, with lambs skipping through fields. And he's saying, basically, that should be over the poster of a dead body. All things work together for the good of those who love God. Here's another way of putting this. God specifically created human beings to be immortal, free moral agents responsible for our own actions. This life we have just now determines our eternal fate. God created this world to be a veil for soul making, if you like. The physical and moral environment allows us to live, to be free moral agents, and to learn what we need to learn. And in that sense, if we are going to freely choose God, we have to have, and God is good, we have to have the possibility to choose the opposite. We cannot be like Henry T. Ford, who when he first built his Model T, said to people, you can have any color you want as long as it's black. I, I would sometimes say to teenagers, you know, if I were God, I could create a world in which you did not experience any suffering, any pain, any broken relationships, any angst or any difficulties. And they would say, oh, and I'd say to them, would you want that world? And they would say, yes. And I'd say, okay, I'll create a world in which I make you a chair. All of you right now, the chairs you're sitting on are not thinking. They're not saying, oh, I wish someone lighter was sitting on me. They're not thinking, I wish I was a couch. They're not thinking, you know, what's the purpose of my life? Because they don't think. Now, that's a ridiculous example, but that's true of animals as well. I, I grew up on a farm. Um, I've never seen cows having a prayer meeting. I, I've never seen pigs getting around discussing the meaning of life. Now, people say, well, you know, how do you know that? We've seen it. No, you haven't. You've seen a Disney film. And sad news is Disney is not reality. In reality, that doesn't happen. But human beings, we are made in God's image. It doesn't mean we have physical bodies as God has a physical body because he doesn't. But we're made in his image, as the catechism says, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. In other words, we have the capacity and the ability to choose good or evil. God would not judge us if what we did we were not responsible for. You know, and I think that is important. So uh, 10 years ago, I was in hospital. I was severely ill. I was given a large number of, of um, drugs to deal with the pain uh, and they affected your psychosis and so on. And it really affected my behavior. 
And I remember going back in to see the staff in the ICU and apologizing for calling them all kinds of names. Or um, I said to one nurse, a male nurse, I was sorry, I think I, I tried to hit you. And he said, yes. He said, you couldn't move your arms or legs, but you still tried. And I said, I'm really, really sorry. He said, well, you weren't responsible for what you did. Because, you know, that wasn't something that was a choice. And I think that that is a, a huge aspect of this. If we are going to freely love God, then we have to be given the choice. And we cannot then complain if we make the wrong choice. And God says, oh, that's okay. I'm just going to count you as having made the right choice anyway. Because then it's not a choice, is it? I saw a play as a teenager, which really impressed me by a Christian company. And it showed two boys walking across the stage, walking across the stage. And one of them said, oh, uh, my bird really loves me. What do you mean your bird really loves you? He said, watch this. And he threw it up in the air, went onto a tree, and he had a piece of string tied onto it. And he shouted to his bird, hey, Boris or whatever, come here. And he pulled the string and the bird came to him. And he said, see, my bird loves me because it comes to me. And his friend said, no, that, that doesn't work. Cut the string. Cut the string and see what happens. And there's a, uh, there was a song that went along with that called Cutting Your Own Strings. But there's a sense in which that is what God did. God could have created us robots, but he didn't. He created us free moral agents. Now, with the fall, that changed. But that's how evil came in. Now, there are many reasons. Um, I think maybe I want to move on just a, a couple of other things before we finish. Uh, who's in the best position to know what good and evil is? Who is able to determine if there truly exists unnecessary suffering that negates the concept of God? And I think you and I need to understand this. We are like pixels in a massive screen. And we don't understand and we don't know what is going on. I think of a couple in New Zealand, a farmer and his wife, who there was a barn fire and two of their children were burned to death in that fire. And one of their friends, inverted commas, rather cruelly said, where's your God now? And their response was simply this. Our God is where he's always been, on his throne. And if it wasn't for that, we'd go crazy. I think you, you need to, people need to understand and, and to, to grasp that the sovereignty and the power of God doesn't mean that nothing bad will ever happen to us. But it does mean that nothing meaningless will happen to us. We may feel that it's meaningless because we only see a narrow part of the picture. We don't see the bigger picture. I was in uh, Corrie ten Baum's house in, in Harlem in the Netherlands, and you'll know the story of Corrie ten Baum, uh, a Christian lady who, her father, her family, they protected Jews during the Second World War, and they ended up going to uh, con being taken to a concentration camp her sister was killed father and so on and when you go in it's very moving going into the house and seeing where they hid the jews and everything else but i think the, the most amazing thing for me was they show you a tapestry and when you turn the they show you first of all the tapestry from the back and from the back it looks an absolute mess 
And then they turn it round and it's a tapestry that Corrie ten Baum made. And it's Romans 8, 28. All things work together for the good of those who love God in beautiful color. So from one angle, your life looks an absolute mess. But from the greater angle, you see how God does work all things together for good. Now, that's how God dealt with Job. I've been working through the book of Job uh, every morning just for five minutes. And um, I'm already I'm only on chapter 10 and we've done 35 of them already. But it's such an amazing book. It's such a great book. And in Job 38, this is what God says to Job. Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have, if you have understanding. Have you comprehended the breadth of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Do you know it? Because you were born then or because the number of your days is so great? Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? Whose mind, this is sorry, that, that was Job. This is me, me speaking. Whose mind knows more about the consequences of all actions? Whose mind is in a better position to know what will happen if this action is permitted? Whose mind has the ability to see the bigger picture? And who alone is in the position to know how much suffering is permissible to bring about the ultimate good for humankind? That has to be the infinite, eternal, omniscient creator, the God of the Bible. Now, all of that, it doesn't mean that we are like Job's comforters saying, hey, God is sovereign, God is great, don't worry, everything's fine. That again comes back to my atheist friends. I don't know if you had the atheist bus slogan in Adelaide, but it was in lots of cities in the world. They, they paid a fortune to put this on a bus. I once debated the person who had uh, drawn this up. And the slogan was, there's probably no God. So cheer up and enjoy life. And I remember debating them saying, yeah, that's a great message to give to the mom whose child has just died from a drug overdose. Really? There's probably no God. So just cheer up, enjoy life. Suck it up, suckers. That's the way it is. No. The Christian approach is more different. And it's not just a case of kind of logically going this, this, and this. When I um, was uh, a young minister, I'm still a young minister, but many years ago, I was 24 years old. I'd come out of theological seminary. I'd gone up to this church and I was doing a Bible study uh, in a home in a village called Embo. And in the course of that study, the hostess, it was her house, she said, um, what about suffering? And I gave her an answer for suffering. To be honest, it was utterly brilliant. You know, I mean, it was C.S. Lewis and Calvin and everyone all knocked into one. And I finished it and I thought, well, that's that one dealt with. That's her answer. And when we finished the study, she went into the kitchen to make some tea and coffee. And one of them leaned over, one of the other people leaned over to me and said, David, do you know who this is? I said, no. I said, oh, that's Richard's mum." Now, Richard was a famous child in Scotland at that time because he'd been born healthy. He'd had some kind of injection. It had all gone wrong. And he'd ended up severely handicapped. The BBC had made a documentary about him. And his mum was an amazing, <coughs> remarkable woman who suffered a great deal. And when I heard that, I couldn't believe it. And I went through the kitchen and I said to her, look, I am really, really sorry. 
what an arrogant prig I was, you know, just to give you that kind of, I said, I honestly I had no idea who you were. And she just looked at me and she didn't say, oh, that's all right, son. Well, she did, but it was what she said after. She said, no, that's all right, son. That's all right, you'll learn. And that's true. You know, we don't pontificate about suffering that we haven't experienced. In um, Dostoevsky's The the Brothers Karamazov, the brother uh, Ivan or Ivan keeps a record of all the bad things happening in the world. The atheist says that humans are supposed to be the objects of God's love, yet they suffer. Thus God does not love or does not have the power to stop the suffering and therefore does not exist. The thoughtful observer soon sees the problem with this, which even the skeptic is forced to admit, it is morally right to allow some suffering in order to bring about a greater good. And ultimately we come to this. What is God's way of dealing with evil? Um, I went to a man's door one time. His daughter used to come to our club and I was giving her a lift in the minibus and I went to the door and he came and he swore at me and said, get lost. And I said, whoa, what's going on here? He says, I didn't realize you were one of them Christians. I said, well, I'm a minister. You knew that. I said, you know, and at least in the free church, we expect our ministers to believe in God. And he said, I hate God. I don't believe in God and I hate him. And I said, well, that's a bit of a waste of emotion, isn't it? He said, hating something. I don't believe in the Loch Ness Monster. I don't hate it. And he came back at me and I said, well, why, why, are you, why are you so passionate about this? And he said, God killed my wife. I said, oh, wait a minute. Hang on, tell me. And his wife had died a couple of years earlier, leaving him with a young daughter and so on. I said, what made you say God killed your wife? He said, well, some Christians had said to him that, well, it'd be okay because it's God's will. That's a crass and callous and cruel thing to say. And he and I started discussing and I said to him, well, what actually, let's come back to this. What killed your wife? So what do you mean? I said, what did she die of? Well, she died of cancer. I said, okay. So what we need to ask, supposing you're saying God doesn't exist. If God didn't exist, would cancer not exist? He said, no. So I said, you still got the problem of evil then. You still got the problem of suffering if God doesn't exist. He said, yeah. I said, well, okay. The key question is not why is there suffering, but the key question is what has God done about it? And so he and I met every week for, I think, eight weeks, talking through the cross, uh, which is God's answer to suffering. And I think after the eighth week, I, I went to his door and he said, no, don't come in, David. I said, what? I said, I thought we were getting on really well. He says, yeah, we are getting on really well. But I said, no. He said, I'd rather be bitter. He said, you're making too much sense. I just don't want to know. And there's no happy ending to that story because I left him and I don't know what happened to him or where he, I mean, I just know we had that, that discussion. But God's way of dealing with evil is through the cross. That's why we preach the cross. I think for the unbeliever, there's probably no God, so just enjoy yourself is about the best that you can get. And it's wrong, it's just false. For the believer, again, I'll come back to Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment, he says this, Pain and suffering are always inevitable for a large intelligence and a deep heart. The really great men must, I think, have great sadness on earth. 
It's a very dangerous prayer to pray that God would work in your life or God would work in your church. Because if God's going to go deeper, it's going to hurt. And we just don't like that. We want to be comfortable. But I know this, that God is good, that God is all powerful. And that any evil that happens to me is something that is not out with his, his control. It's not random. Um, I love Lord of the Rings, the books and the, the films. And at the end of Lord of the Rings, I think it's Sam who asks, is everything sad going to come untrue? I think what's going to happen, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, is that everything will be set in perspective. And as Paul says, right now, it's our light and momentary troubles are, are bringing for us a greater glory, a far greater glory. Um, there are applications to this. I think I'll leave those for you. You may want to ask some questions, but let me finish by reading a poem that I saw uh, in the Nat National Portrait Gallery in London. And I was so amazed at this, I, I, I went and took a photo. I couldn't believe it was there. It's by Ben Okri. Freedom is a difficult lesson to learn. I've tasted the language of death till it became the water of life. I've shaved, shaved a little canvas of my times. I have crossed seas of fire and seen with these African eyes the one light which neither empires nor all the might of men obscure. Man is the sickness, God the cure. And I think that is how I would sum it. Man is the sickness, God the cure. So um, obviously there's much, much more that could be said, even in terms of uh, practical and, and questioning and so on. I've been thinking about this for many, many, many years and wrestled with it in so many ways. And I know of nothing that deals with the problem of suffering and evil uh, as well as or anywhere near as good as the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The ugliest event on the history of earth, the cross, is also the one that saves the earth. So uh, let's leave it there and see if we've got any questions or comments or if you're going to have an early call. Hi, David. I'm Ross. Hi, Ross. Um, I'm just you speaking um, about the, the suffering and evil. I'm just wondering about your thoughts relating to good and evil, uh, as in if is evil anything that is in defiance and um, and disbelief of God, any any activity. So does that mean that human good, and there's a lot of good things that go on in the world that are done uh, in total absence of God or without uh, any thought of God uh, for the betterment of humanity, does that make those activities which are in defiance of God evil? Wow. Okay, Ross. Yeah. That, uh... Let me go back to Augustine. So when he says that God didn't create evil, he's saying evil is the absence of good. There's goodness there. And it's a bit like light and darkness. It's very, very hard to describe what light is. And even more so darkness. Darkness is the absence of light. So I think that um, you can have people who are not believers who can do good. Now, you, 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 people immediately say, oh, there's none that does good. No, no, no. That, that, when the Bible says that, it's talking about doing good, which leads to our salvation in that regard. We cannot ultimately please God, but we can do things that are good. So if I, you know, 
feed a starving child or something. Uh, I may have many different motivations for doing it. That is in and of itself a good thing. Human beings are created in the image of God, and we still retain that. Um, but as we more and more move away from that, then more and more evil comes in. So my view is, for example, in our society, let's think of it this way. You know, we've been very, very wound up about COVID and understandably so. And, um, and yet COVID is one of perhaps six billion viruses in the world. And some people say, well, why did God permit this? Or why did, did God do this? And I would say, well, actually, we need to think about God's restraining hand upon many things. Romans 1 carries this, says that the ultimate judgment God can give is say, okay, do it your way. Have it your way. This is what happens. And I think when we reject God, we descend, we go more and more away from the good and we descend more and more into evil. So um, I've been watching uh, Netflix's mega hit just now. The Squid Game, which I wouldn't recommend if you're even remotely squeamish. It's excessively violent, although it is a bit cartoonishly violent. But part of it is, one of the reasons I was watching it, I was trying to find out why it was so popular. Uh, and part of what's going on there is, as I look at it, I'm saying, well, this is humanity without God. Selfish, self-absorbed. And yet there remain bits of goodness and bits of kindness and so on that are in there, but humanity still needs redeemed. So. Um, I think that human beings can descend into evil more and more. And I mean, my studies at university were in the Weimar Republic and the rise of Nazism and so on. And I've stood, at, I've been in Auschwitz and Birkenau and, you know, here were people who played Mozart on the piano and possibly some even went to church. And yet they slaughtered millions of people. You know, the, what um, Solzhenitsyn says, the dividing line between good and evil goes right through the heart of every one of us. I think that's a, that, that's a pretty good description. Sorry, Ross, that was a, a huge long answer, but it's such a good question. It just got me thinking about a lot of different things. But yeah, thank you. Hi, David. I'm Jeff. Hi. When I was young, um, some of the tradesmen, I was an apprentice, uh, were challenging me about my faith and um, they, they're talking about the we, we had a fairly similar discussion about the uh, existence of God and, and, and the presence of good and evil and whilst that then got me off their back, my back because you know I, I had a good rational reason for believe, believing in God at least in their eyes from that point of view I never told them about the cross. Yeah. And I'm just wondering from an evangelical point of view, are we better standing at the cross and seeing that the father suffered pain in sending the son and the son suffering pain on our behalf, which if everyone has in them, even if they're denying the existence of God, still this understanding that he is. So yeah. the question is from an evangelical point, and I'm, I'm glad that you, 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 you highlighted the cross and what you said, whether we, where our best starting point is, do we see people coming through the apologetic argument to the cross or can we just start at the cross? 
I, I think that what we can do, I mean, basically, I, I'm, I'm very reluctant. I, I know it's one of the things while I've been here is people like programs and say, can we go from step one to step two, step three, to step four? And I'm saying, don't do that because different people, different things. You can have different starting points for different people. In the New Testament, in the book of Acts, the apostles often started with the fact Jesus is alive. Um, other people will start with the creation, other people. But for me, on this question, I would just simply do a couple of things. I mean, I agree with you completely, by the way, about the centrality of the cross, which is what I was trying to say. Um, first of all, I would say to somebody, I'm thankful that you acknowledge that evil exists. Now, where do you get this idea of good and evil? If it's just a social construct, if it's just a human thing, it's meaningless. So the fact that you acknowledge that there's good and evil, that's hugely important, and I'm really glad of it. The second question you're asking is, why does God permit some things? And to be honest, I don't really know the answer to all of that. However, I do know where I can begin. I I'll begin with what has God done about it? And I'm going to take you to the darkest event in human history ever. And that is the cross. And why did that happen? You know, the son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Now, one of the big problems with the cross is once you grasp the cross, people go in, what my sin was so bad that it took jesus to die yeah it was you know there's, there's nothing like the cross for convicting you of sin or convicting you of the love of god or convincing you of the love of god so i agree with you completely um i would say if you don't begin with the cross get to it as soon as possible because the cross is the answer is god's answer to the problem of evil what have you done about evil god i sent my son Hi, David. I'm Lauren. Um, Hi, Lauren. My friend recently, I was speaking to her about God and she kept framing Jesus dying on the cross as God um, doing an evil act and then said that made him more humane to her, which made him more relatable because he could make mistakes. It <laughs> huh. me a lot in, in the framing of God as evil, sending Jesus to the cross. Because growing up a Christian, you know, Jesus chose that. Yeah. And that was God's plan to redeem us. But framing it in an evil way, I hadn't thought about it in that way. So I wasn't sure how to respond. And I still, like, I could reopen that conversation. But if you have any insight into that, that would be great. Yeah, I, I would say, it, no, absolutely. What happened to Jesus was evil. But it's interesting in the Bible, it says, you crucified him. It was your sins. It was my sin that put him there. This was not God doing evil. This was God doing good. And I would go straight to John 3, 16. God so loved that he gave his son and he allowed this to happen. So, for example, supposing, um, you know, I don't know, some TV drama like 24 or something. Like supposing that Sydney was about to be blown apart by a nuclear bomb. And uh, I was able to save Sydney by sacrifice, by, by giving them my son, and I did that. Would that be an evil act? I, I think most people would absolutely see that it wasn't an evil act. You know, it could be a sacrificial one. Um, it's, it's, an, it's an unbelievable sacrificial one. Paul in Romans says, you know, we, we won't even die for our friends, never mind our enemies. But God sent his son to die for us. So that's not evil. That's the ultimate good. It's the most amazing good. It's the most amazing act of grace and mercy. The cross itself is evil, but it's evil because of, um, you know, in, in Mel Gibson's The Passion, he does this very well. The devil attacking him, the Roman soldiers attacking him, 
the religious authorities attacking him, and ultimately every one of us being responsible for that. You know, and so I, I to your friend, I would simply say, I, I the, the cross is what God did. The Father, Son, and Spirit on the cross is the most good thing that's ever been done. It's evil that drove him there, but this is how God dealt with evil. And so I think, I mean, that's a fascinating conversation you've had with your friend. I would definitely revisit that. I'd love to have that kind of conversation. In fact, if I ever get down to Adelaide, uh, introduce me to your friend and we'll have a chat. <laughs> I'd love it. Thank you.